very much really proud of Julie and her new husband, Nate, right? Is it Nate? Where are you guys at? Where'd you go sit down at? Oh, okay, way back there. Good, come sit right here where I was for a minute. I want people to give you some money. I think we're supposed to give them some money. So I think if you want to give it to Bethel Church and write uh, M55 on it, um, that will all go to them. Or you can just give them cash, whatever whatever you want to do. We're going to give them some money ourselves. So why don't we just take a minute right now. and You guys can just sit right here and just come up and just give it to them, would you? If you have, if you have something you want to give them, just come and give it to them. It's awesome. Newlyweds in Africa. I mean, come on. <laughs> Sheesh. They should be wealthy. <laughs> yeah. So good. We're so so proud of what's happening there with Tracy. How many of you have read uh, the book we wrote, Outrageous Courage, about Tracy's life? It's really a great book, too. Um, yeah. I think Julie may be, I think we may have some of Julie's story in there. I don't remember. To tell you the truth. Didn't we, don't we have some of Julie's story in there? I'm pretty sure we do. Yeah. It's awesome. And I hope that you're teaching them everything I taught you. Absolutely. Because taking credit for, yes. Yes, of course. They should know my name. Yeah. Thank you for blessing her. Good. All right, grab a hand. If you're single, this is the most exciting time for you. And I know you knew I was coming, so I'm sure you sat strategically. Lord, we just, we just thank you for what you're doing. We thank you that your spirit's being poured out all over the world. That you said you'd pour out your spirit on all flesh. That there wouldn't be anybody who, um, who doesn't receive the benefit of your spirit. That you make it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And that this is just such an amazing and gracious time to be alive. And so, Lord, we, we pray today that you would open our eyes to new dimensions of your spirit. And that we would be a wineskin that you can pour new wine in. That we would be flexible. That we would be current. That we would be covenant. In Jesus' name. Amen. And um, I, I'm done at 1030. Is that correct? Okay. Um, if you'll turn to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18, I wanna, I'm going to do a series over the next few, I don't know how long it will take me actually, months called All the King's Men. It's a story about David and his men and the life of uh, David and what we can learn from the life of David and the life of his men. And um, I don't know how much of this I'll, I'll get to do here, but um, 1 Samuel 18 is a story of uh, David and Jonathan. And so I thought I'd start this morning with just talking about Jonathan and David and what we can learn from the life of of Jonathan and David. Um, You'll remember that David, of course, is the son of Jesse, the eighth son of Jesse. David said this in the Psalms. He said, in sin I was conceived. And it's likely that David was probably born out of um, an adulterous relationship that his father had. It's probably why, and um, it's fo- probably why, when in First Samuel 15, I think it is, when the prophet Samuel came to David's house, came to Jesse's house, uh, David's house, his, Jesse, his father, and said to Jesse, I'm, "I'm looking for a king amongst your sons." That David didn't even get invited to the inauguration. Probably. He probably didn't want the prophet to know that he had an illegitimate child. And so um, it's, it's probably the reason, it's probably a sin that followed David the rest of his life. He had, we know, an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Solomon had uh, struggles with wives. And finally they, they ended up taking his heart away from God in, this, in the last days of Solomon's life. He didn't, as far as we know, as far as what's recorded, he actually didn't serve God because he followed other he followed foreign wives and, and, and followed after their gods. And so 
Um, but there was, so David's uh, life is a life of uh, great triumph and great tragedy, great poverty and great prosperity. And I think it's, um, I think someday I might write a book about the life of, of the mighty men of David. But um, in 1 Samuel 18, this is a story, you'll remember that in 1 Samuel 17, David kills Goliath and for the first time uh, in his, in, as far as we know in his life, he becomes kind of famous. People start to know who he is. They had this long battle with the Philistines. They're coming home uh, um, and David uh, gets introduced to um, Saul. Now, it's kind of interesting. Uh, in fact, we'll just read verse uh, 1 of chapter 18. It says, it came about that when he had finished speaking, speaking of uh, David, speaking to uh, Saul, when he had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as he loved himself. Everybody say, he loved him as he loved himself. And he took him that day, and he didn't let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as he loved himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him, and he gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. And so David went out whenever Saul, wherever Saul sent him, and he prospered. And Saul sent him over, and put him, set him over all of the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. I want to talk a little bit this, this morning about covenant. That Jonathan took his, he fell in love with David, and it says that the soul of Jonathan was, was knit to the soul of David. Now, um, just for clarity, I want you to, you know, in our culture, in American culture, and as a matter of fact, this isn't really an American thing. All over the world, I hear people teaching about two things. One, that soul ties are somehow evil, and I do believe soul ties can be evil, so I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But that in some, in some places, they actually teach that this was some sort of homosexual relationship that Jonathan had with David. And it's, it's, the struggle in our culture is that we can't separate, for some reason, we can't separate the um, sex and love. In our culture, sex and love are somehow inherently combined. And I'd like to propose to you that Jonathan and David did not have any kind of a sexual relationship whatsoever. They had a brother-to-brother relationship that would probably be very common among warriors. I think that um, part of the challenge when people come back from Vietnam, for instance, or from Iraq or Iran, uh, I'm sorry, not Iran, but uh, Afghanistan, places where men and women have fought together in the trenches and they've watched each other's back and they've watched friends die. There's some kind of a camaraderie, a friendship, if you will. Um, and, and in fact, Jonathan goes on, David goes on later on, we'll read it in just a minute. It says that the, Jonathan, David says when Jonathan dies that my love for you, Jonathan, was greater than a love for a woman. And he's not, and he, there's no references to, any, to anything sexual between Jonathan and David. Um, they, they, they kiss one another, which is a common Jewish custom. And as a matter of fact, I come from a Spanish family where we, men kiss men. In fact, if you go to Spain, you uh, kiss in three places, everybody. You kiss on both cheeks and on, on the lips. And uh, I don't do the lip thing very well. <laughs> Especially with men, it seems just a little weird. Um, but I, I think that it's one of the, it's one of the things... That when people come back from actually being in war, I think it's one of the things that causes the post-traumatic stress syndrome. It's not just it's not just that they've you know they've killed people or they've been in that those kind of environments. It's also the sense of camaraderie that you have when you your your soul is so knit to the person who saved your life. You saved their life. You saw friends around you die around you, and there's a, there's a bond that's almost, it's very difficult to describe. I have never been to war, um, but I've talked to so many of them that they, they miss that, 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 if you will, that soul tie that they had with people in which they battled to save their lives. And Jonathan, as you know, 
um, throughout the Bible is probably the second greatest warrior next to David. Jonathan is the one who him and his armor bearer go after a whole army of the, uh, I'm not sure if it was the Philistines, but they go after this army. Remember Jonathan is the one who said, can, can the Lord, uh, said, can the Lord get saved by many, but not by few. And so Jonathan has that same Davidic kind of, you know, David stands against a, a giant who's nine foot six and says, you know, you're messing with the wrong guy. Jonathan, David, both are great warriors. And these two great warriors have a soul tie in which they make a covenant and they fall in love with one another, but this love is not a sexual love. It, and how many of you know that we need to separate love and lust and sex and, and, and love? And I, I think there's so much perversion in our culture. When somebody says, I love you, sometimes even when you know, even a father says to a daughter, I love you, there's so much confusion over, the, over sex and love that sometimes people feel like they're being sexualized when somebody expresses some form of adoration for them. And I think that's part of the unhealthy part of our culture. Uh, Peter uh, said, kiss, uh, um, greet one another with a kiss of love. Paul said four times, greet one another with a holy kiss. And we know that Jesus, uh, I mean, think about this. Two times in the life of Jesus, he's at, he's at a party or, if you will, a dinner with Pharisees when prostitutes break into the dinner. I've shared this probably a month ago. Prostitutes break into the dinner and they begin to weep over Jesus and pour this perfume over his feet and use their, their tears and their hair to, wipe, to wash his feet. These are, not, these are prostitutes. And you know the story, Simon the, the Pharisee in one of the stories is one of the guys who invites Jesus to his house. And this, this lady is just you know, acting totally inappropriately. First of all, in Judaism, women weren't allowed to even be in the same room with a man when he was having dinner unless he, they were serving him. And so here she is in this house and she's weeping over him and she's wiping her feet, his feet with her tears and this looks like a totally inappropriate, you can imagine. This is not just, this isn't, you know, uh, a Benny Johnson or Kathy Valentin. This is a prostitute from the city. She's wiping her, her, his feet with her tears. She's pouring this alabaster vial over him. And it looks like this is not, uh, this looks like a totally immoral act. And the Simon, the, the uh, Pharisee, thinks to himself, he doesn't say it out loud, he just thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know which, he would know who it is that's poor. In other words, he would know this woman's a prostitute. And Jesus turns to Simon, this, the Pharisee, and says, Simon, do you see this woman? When I came to your house, you gave me no kisses. You gave me no kisses. The connotation is, you should have been kissing me. <laughs> You gave me no kisses. Are you with me? This is not homosexuality. This is a healthy, affectionate, covenant culture. Simon, when I came into your house, you gave me no kisses. And what he's saying is this prostitute knows more about the kingdom than you do. When I came into your house, you gave me no kisses. But this woman understands the kingdom better than you do, and she's a prostitute. She hasn't ceased to kiss my feet since I've been here. And when I came in your house, you didn't wash my feet, but she washed, her, she washed my feet with her tears. In other words, Jesus is acknowledging that passion is part of the kingdom. And that this affection that she has for Jesus is something that he wants embraced, not a Spock-like culture. And so I think it's really important that we, we move out of this idea. And I think we have to create a healthy culture that's, that's healthy spirit, soul, and body. And so when it says the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, I'd like to propose to you that there are healthy soul ties. I, I don't know if I even have to teach on unhealthy soul ties because we've been teaching it for 25 years. I do believe in unhealthy soul ties. I do believe there's something wrong when you're, you're married to somebody and you have a stronger tie to someone you're not married to than you do to your spouse. I think that's unhealthy. I, and we could go through a list of unhealthy soul ties. And I think we have done it over the years. So if you will, let me be out of balance for a minute. There's also healthy soul ties. 
I, I do believe that, that men need a, a healthy soul tie to other men. I, I, I do believe that, that there are times when, when men long to have a, a relationship with another man, that women long to have a relationship with another woman. Not, you understand that I have mean nothing sexual by this. As I actually mean the opposite of that. That there, there's a longing for men to be loved by men. For there to be a father-son connection. For there to be a soul tie. And in our culture, I think that when you have, when, that, when you, when you have that longing, it's being identified as, as a homosexual longing. It ends up in sexuality, but it, doesn't, it ends up being sexual. But it didn't begin like that. And it would have never been like that if someone didn't tell you that that longing you have is somehow a perver- They don't say it's a perversion, but it's somehow sexual. I don't think you need to be in bed with somebody to have a soul tie that's healthy with them. I think when you get in bed with somebody you're not married to, it is unhealthy. But it says the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And he loved him as he loved himself. Think about this. like, well, this is kind of, you know... the. This is, this is the beginnings of a homosexual relationship. Really, Jesus loved you as he loved himself. He laid down his life for you. It didn't have anything to do with sexuality. Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't have a, a sexual relationship with his church. He has an intimate relationship with his church. It, this, this idea that I lay down my life for someone because my soul is knit to them is actually at the root of the gospel. That I actually love you enough to lay down my life for you. And I love you not just like a distant, like, whoo, you know, wow, you're out there, you know, I lay down my life for you. But I actually have compassion and passion for you. It's actually part of the gospel. And we, to me, we have this idea, it's like, I love you. I want to lay down my life for you. You should lay down your life for me. Man, you know, I don't know, it's kind of robotic. It's kind of gotten weird. It's kind of gotten weird and robotic, and the people are like, you know, I don't know. It's kind of like, it, it feels more like the Moose Club than it does the passionate love that Jesus is trying to, I, I think, exhort us to have when he sees prostitutes and he goes, yeah, I don't agree with the immorality, but see that passion she's got going on? I like that. Simon, see that passion? This is what you should be doing. You should be giving me kisses. I like it. And it says this. It says that he. Jonathan made a covenant with David. A covenant. Because he loved him. Here it, says, here, here it goes again. Because he loved him as he loved himself. He made a covenant. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him. And he gave it to David. With his armor and his sword. And his bow and his belt. Now. I don't know if what you think's going on here. He's not like giving him his best suit. He's giving him his robe. Jonathan is the heir to the throne. His father's the king. So when he gives him his robe, he's not giving him like, you know, his cool leather coat. He's giving him, he's, he's saying, listen, my identity, this is my identity. I am the, I'm the prince I'm the heir to the throne, but I'm giving you this this robe represents my heirship to the throne, and I'm giving that to you. And then it says that he gave him also he gave him also his armor, including his sword, his bow, and his belt. This is really important. It's this is important in marriage too, and I I I, I want to. I want to say, he gave him his armor. I can't tell you how many people marry and never merge. Now, you understand that I'm not saying this. I'm saying specifically this is not sexual. And I'm also saying that there's a husbands and wives, they always should have a sexual relationship, obviously. But there's another dimension to marriage that isn't sexual. And I think that oftentimes we marry, but we leave our armor on. And we carry our weapons with us. You know, when we say, I lay down my life for you, I, I wonder if, how, how many people really understand what we're saying. 
I, when I say I'm laying down my life for you, I'm like, well, you look like you're still living. So, like, is, is this a metaphor? And what I'm really saying is this. When I say I lay down my life for you, I'm saying I am, I am vulnerable. See, I have no armor. And I gave you, I gave you my weapons. I gave you the ability to hurt me. When, when Judas, do you know that Judas, Jesus and Judas, that Judas was not a murderer? He was a betrayer. Do you, do you know how he betrayed Jesus? He betrayed him with a kiss, but do you know what, what the betrayal was? Jesus was like, like Bin Laden in that he was a man on the run the last probably year of his ministry, and he had a secret place where they all met. The place was so secret that the Pharisees had to pay Judas to figure out where Jesus met. Judas betrayed Jesus by telling a secret. And what I'm getting at is this. Part of what we do, I, part of what we do in in relationships that we have a covenant with, is that we become that we become intimate in this way. Into me, you see. And I have, you have information. I give you these weapons. I give you my armor. And I give you these weapons. I give you the ability to destroy me with the things that you know about me. And what's a betrayal? A betrayal isn't like my, my friend and I got in a fight. The betrayal is when you take information that you that I told you in secret and you use it to hurt me. When you take the weapons that I gave you, things that you know about me, and you use them later in a fight against me, you have betrayed me. One of the one of the most devastating things that you can do in a, in a covenant relationship is to take things that someone told you in private and use them in an argument with those people. One of the worst things that can happen, one of the, one of the most devastating things that can happen in a relationship is when you and I are in covenant and I've told you secrets and we get in an argument and you tell those secrets back to me to to win a battle against me. You take those weapons I gave you, those vulnerabilities, these places I've failed, and you use them against me in a conflict with me. How many of you understand that that's not fair fight? That's a betrayal. It's really important that we learn how to be a covenant people. This morning I feel like it's important that we learn that we are called to covenant. And that covenant means that I give you my robe. It's so strange to me. I I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5 for a minute. Ephesians chapter 5. You'll probably recognize these verses when you get there. Chapter 5, verse 21. Be subject to one another. Everybody say, be subject to one another. In the fear of Christ. Now, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, how many of you know they just got told to be subject to one another? I, I don't know if you got this. The husband and wife are standing here, if you can picture it. And the Apostle Paul says, be subject to one another. He just told them to be subject to one another. Then he turns to the, to the wife and says, be subject to your husband. How many know they've already been told to be subject to one another? So there's an emphasis to the women to, be, to honor your husbands. We could talk about why in a minute. Well, let me just tell you why Paul emphasized wives be subject to your husbands in three cities 
when Paul write in Paul writes to nine different geographic locations. In three of those locations, he either restricts women or exhorts them, as he here, as he is doing here in Ephesus. You know why? Because the God, because in Corinth, in Corinthians, the city of Corinth, in and to Titus he writes and restricts women. Titus is in Creed. Um, um, in, Cor- in the Corinthian church, and in, Ephes- in Ephesus, this, the book of Ephesians, which he writes to Timothy. Timothy's the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Um, Titus is the pastor of the church at um, Creed. All, of, all three of these geographical locations, they were polytheists. You know what polytheists is? They believed in multiple gods, but the god of all three of these cities were women. In other words, the, the god of Ephesus was Diana. I forget the name of the god of Corinth and the god of Creed. All three of them, the, the, the head god, remember they were polytheists, so they had multiple gods, but the dominating god was a goddess in Ephesus, in Creed, and in Corinth. And that's why Paul talks specifically about the way that women relate to men because women dominated those cultures. They were women-dominated cultures because their God was a woman. Anyway, he tells them here to be subject to one another. He reminds the wife to be subject to her, her husband. But this part, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself up for her. Everybody say, gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, and cleanse her by the washing of the water by the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, with no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. No one ever loved, I'm sorry, he who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it. So also Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This This is a great example, in my mind, of a misunderstanding of covenant. Like these passages, we emphasize, this is kind of a strange thing, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. How many understand that when, hus- when a man and woman marry, that the husband, the man, is on a death march to a life camp? He's on a death march to a life camp. He is, he's commanded to lay down his life for his wife. What is she commanded to do? Honor her husband. Isn't it odd that we would shout, wives submit, and yet the man is on a death march? He's the one that's been told to give up his armor, to give up his, to give up his, his robe, his armor, and his weapons. He's, he's been, he is Jonathan in this. He's been told, listen, you, are, you have the right to the throne, but I want you to lay that down for your wife. I want you to give her your, your robe. I want you to give her your armor. And I want you to give her your weapons. The emphasis is on the man laying down his life, not on the woman being subject. Are you following me? And yet, for some reason in covenant, we emphasize the practical skills of, of respect and don't emphasize the 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 very real part that I that if I'm in a covenant I've come to die for you I've come to lay down my life for you it's interesting to me in marriage that we taught we when we counsel um, husbands and wives we often say something like this and I've heard it for years and I've done it myself and say, okay, when, when, you know, in pre-marriage counseling, I'm like, okay, whatever your husband wants to do for a career, your job is to serve him. I'm like, that's really strange, because Ephesians 5 tells us that he's the one laying down his life to make sure her dreams come true. Anyway, I know that went over really well. See, we say... I'm, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Now, whatever I want to do, your job is to make sure that you make me look like a genius. 
what part of your life are you laying down? Um, I'm going to get a job and make sure you, you have food on the table. I'm like, that doesn't sound like, I, listen, how about I get a job? <laughs> and I, I like the way you're laying down your life. I'll lay down my life that way. The woman says, I'll, I'll get a job and you make sure that I get to do everything I want to do. <laughs> I don't know if you see where I'm going. I'm saying that covenant means that you gave up your rights. That you die. Someone says, I have a right to feel this way. Well, if you came into covenant, you don't have a right to feel anyway. You lay down your life for somebody. And I'm surprised by how many people get married because of feelings instead of covenant. Because the struggle is, is that if my relationship is based on feelings, then what happens when the feeling leaves? And what happens when it comes back? <laughs> Yikers. So Jonathan makes a covenant with David. In Matthew 26... Verse 26, Jesus got everyone together. He says, while they're eating, Jesus took some bread. And after blessing, he broke it. And he gave it to disciples. And he said, take this. Is my what? This is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. How many of you understand that when you received Jesus, that you came into a new covenant? A covenant is agreement. A covenant, the difference between a covenant and an agreement is a covenant is an agreement onto death. A covenant says that I will die, I will die to fulfill this agreement. And so, how many of you understand that we had a covenant with God? And the covenant we, we had in the Old Testament, how many know the Old Testament is an old covenant? Are you guys, am I off? Are you guys bored? The Old Testament is actually an old covenant. And the old covenant said this. Remember, God wanted a relationship with people, Adam and Eve. God was there in the, in the cool of the garden, uh, walking with Adam and Eve. And God wanted to live in relationship with his people. But people said things like, in Exodus 19, God said, uh, tells Moses, Moses is up on the mountain talking to God. God says to tell the people, if they will keep my covenants, if they will keep my commandments and obey my word, they shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people from my own possession. Moses comes down to the, from the mountain and says, hey, I just talked to God. He said that if you will keep his commandments and obey his word, you shall be to him a whole kingdom, not just the Levitical priests but you shall all be a kingdom of priests a holy nation a people for god's own possession and the people said this listen you talk to god and you tell us what he says and we will do it in other words god said i'd like to have a personal relationship with you and the people said we don't want a relationship with god we just want to get we just want to get to heaven by keeping these rules and God said, okay, you want, to keep, you want rules? I'll give you rules. And he gave them rules. Rules. 647 rules. God said, here, keep all these rules. And if you keep all these rules, you can get to heaven. And Isaiah cries out 500 years before Christ. And he says, there's none righteous, not even one. Right? And what was the first covenant for? The first covenant taught us that we couldn't get to God through our works. We can only get to him through his. And so Hebrews chapter 8, I think I may have it here. Hebrews chapter 8 says that God gave us a new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 says this. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the first covenant which I made with their fathers. On that day, I took them by the hand and I led them to the land of Egypt, and they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with them in the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds, and I'll write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he, he, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. How many of you understand that in the old covenant, the, it, the, your relationship with God depended on your performance? On the new covenant, your relationship with God depends on his performance. See, God wanted to change the covenant, but here's the challenge. A covenant is on to death. Remember, I said a covenant is on to death. I will die to defend this covenant. If, and when God wanted to change a covenant, what was the first covenant? The first covenant was based on your ability to, to, your ability to perform these rules for God. And nobody could ever do that. So when God wanted to change a covenant, what did God have to do? God had to die. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, he was God in the flesh. The Son of God became the Son of men, man so that the sons of men could become sons of God. When God wanted to change the covenant, God had to die. Why? Because the covenant is on to death. Are you with me? So when Jesus died on the cross, he inaugurated a new covenant. And he says here in Hebrews, listen, you're not going to have to teach your neighbor, know the Lord. You're not going to say, know the Lord. For they will all know the Lord, because what is this covenant? This covenant is not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. He said, I will write their laws. No longer will I write laws on stones. I will be intimate with them. I will, into me, you'll see. I will write the laws, my laws, on their hearts. No longer will the relation, your relationship be outside in. It will be inside out. People will want to love me because they will know me, not from the outside in, but from, they won't know me from a, a mountain far away. They'll know me from a house inside of them. I will take up habitation. They will be my house. Instead of them coming to my house, I will be, they will be my house. They will become my house. And so I wanted to just end with a few things about covenant this morning. covenant there's seven things about covenant the first one i mentioned that in covenant you remove your weapons and you submit them to one another you remove their we- your weapons and you submit them to one another in a marriage covenant sometimes people will come to me and say you know i have this terrible thing that in my life i've been married for two years i had this terrible thing happen when i was a child and, um, you know, I just, I, I think it's affecting my relationship with my husband. I'm like, have you told your husband? If I, have you told your husband about this thing that happened to you? No, I never have. How many of you understand that if you haven't told your secrets, you're not in covenant? <laughs> Why haven't you told him? He'll think less of me. No, no you've given him your weapons. <laughs> You've laid down your armor, vice versa, husbands. Uh, and this, is, this isn't just about husband and wife. This is about covenant. What, what happens when I'm in a covenant? When I come in a covenant with somebody, I, I let them have my armor. I give them my armor. I give them my weapons. And I give them my robe. I give them my destiny. Here's my destiny, my robe. I am destined for the throne. But unless you... Unless you give me, unless you re-robe me, I have given up my destiny for you. Sometimes, uh, you know, we have, we call them born-again virgins. A born-again virgin. We, we have a lot of people in more revolution in, in, our, in our movement that we pray for, and God restores their virginity. He even restores them physically. He restores their hymen. And how many of you understand that God wanted us to have children 
God wanted us wanted children to be born out of covenant. That's why he gave us that's why he gave a woman a hymen so that the covenant could be made before the children were conceived, the blood covenant. And sometimes um, God, uh, some, somebody, a man, a woman, will have an immoral background. And they'll receive Jesus. And they'll, God restores them completely. And the question, I mean, we've had this question asked probably a hundred times. You know, um, I, years, two or three years after the Lord restored me, I, I met this guy. And we're dating. And we're, we're now he's asked me to marry him. Should I tell him about my background because Jesus has covered it? Yes, you should. You shouldn't tell him. You don't need to tell him when you're friends. Nobody needs to know about your, your, what happened in your past. No, no, nobody needs to know about your past when you're born again, when you're a born again virgin. But how many know if you're going to marry someone, you don't want any secrets? You want to give them your armor. You want to give them your weapons. Hmm. So the first thing is you have to give your, your weapons to one another. How many of you know that Jesus did that for us? Second Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. How many of you understand? And when Jesus came into covenant with us, he gave us his weapons. Number two, when they made a covenant with one another, and this isn't just husband and wife, but when they made a covenant with one another, come up, come up here for a minute. You know how we shake hands. We shake hands like this. Can you see up here? We shake hands like this. But this actually began as something we used to do like this. And the reason why is we used to cut our wrists and bleed together. And this has become this. And I propose to you that not only do we not make a blood covenant together anymore, but all we do is shake hands. And so a covenant, how many know that a covenant has to do with being crucified for one another? And Jesus shed his blood for us. In fact, Jesus said this when Thomas said, I won't believe it unless I see it. Jesus said, See my wrist. See my side. A covenant has a vow of allegiance. Number three, a covenant, there's a vow of allegiance. You know, in marriage, what do we do when we make a covenant? We get a bunch of people together and we share our allegiance to one another. How many know that Jesus did that in Matthew 28, Jesus spoke to them and he said, I've given you all authority. All authority that has been given to me in heaven and earth. You go make disciples of all nations. A covenant requires allegiance. And so when we make a covenant with one another, if I have a covenant with you, it, it, it has to be verbalized. It doesn't necessarily mean, obviously, if I'm married, I get witnesses together and we exchange vows. Do you understand what a vow is? It's a covenant. I, 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 you know, I'm sometimes it's funny. I go to weddings and they share these really romantic things with one another, but it's not, there's nothing about, there's actually no agreement. There's like, this is how much I love you. It's like, okay, where's the agreement? Where's the covenant? Number four, you exchange names. And Jesus did this. He said, these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, you will cast out demons. How many know that you've been given his name? In a Jewish wedding, after they would exchange allegiance, they would exchange vows, they would exchange names. And the man would take on the woman's name, and the woman would take on the man's surname. And so in my case, my, my wife's maiden name is Talbert. So I would be Chris Talbert Valentin. And she would take on my name, and she would be Kathy Valentin Talbert. We would actually exchange names. How many understand that a covenant isn't a one-way relationship? It's an exchange. Sometimes um, we get in situations with people who are, 
who are, quote, they're married. How many know people, some people marry, but they never merge? This is, feels intense in here. Listen, we are accustomed in America to marriages where people do not make covenant and they don't merge. And so they're like, well, my husband is, or my wife, it can be either. I was just thinking of some. My husband is having sex with somebody else, and he's doing this, and he's doing that, and, and I, I, I don't want to divorce him. Listen, I am not pro-divorce at all, but that's not a covenant. That's not a covenant. A covenant is when I... I can't have a one-way covenant. There's no such thing as a one-way covenant. Like, I make an agreement with you, but you don't make an agreement with me. The idea is we lay down our lives for one another. It's like, if I lay down my life for you, but you don't for me, how many know that's not, we're not going to merge? A marriage is a merge. The two become one flesh. How many of you understand that Adam, I mean, the woman was taken out of the man. And when they got married, listen, he was taken out of the man. And when Adam woke up, he said, for this reason, for what reason? Because the woman was taken out of the man. For this reason, the two shall become one flesh. Why? Because the one became two flesh. And in covenant, two become one flesh. You can't have a one-way relationship and call it a marriage. Hmm. They exchanged names. Jesus gave you his name. When you deal with demons, you don't deal with it. In the name of Chris, come out. What? Who are you? I've heard about Paul. I know about Jesus. Who are you? No, I carry his name. We don't have a prenup agreement. Up the poor man, the poor man married this wealthy, married into wealth. How many know that Jesus didn't say, okay, listen, I'm going to marry you, but all the wealth of heaven I have, so we're going to have this prenup agreement. Like, if this doesn't go good, no, he said, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. You come in a relationship with Jesus, you come into covenant, and you leave, you take some of, your, some of his stuff with you. He doesn't have a prenup agreement. As a matter of fact, when you come in a relationship with Jesus, he set you in heavenly places with Christ. Well, of course you have to be with Christ. You're in Christ. You're hidden in Christ. He seated you in heavenly places with Christ, far above all principalities and powers. What happened to you when you received Jesus? You married into wealth. If you're a woman, you were a princess. If you're a man, you were a prince. You married into oh, I was a pauper. You was, but you ain't now. You exchange robes. Number five, almost done. You exchange robes. It says, Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul exalts God. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robes of righteousness. How many of you know that Jonathan is the, is the picture of Jesus in the Old Testament? He gave you his robe of righteousness. What did you, what did you give him? You gave him your robe. It's dirty rags. You're like, here's mine. He's like, thank you. Number six, we're almost done. A, a, a covenant requires a memorial. There's something we, we do to remember that we made a covenant. Jesus' memorial for the rest of eternity. Jesus will be scarred in his side. Remember, it's in the book of Revelation. In his side and in his hands, he will forever carry those scars. It's what you do when you put on a ring. You're married. You're, you, put, you wear it on a certain finger. Are you with me, ladies and men? I wear a ring on a certain finger. What does that say? I'm taken. This is a memorial. I don't have an option. This ring on this finger, if I wear this ring on a different finger, in a, at least in American culture, it means something different. But as soon as I take this ring and put it on this finger in American culture, it says, taken. No options. I'm a one-woman man. It's a memorial. <laughs> okay. And the last thing in, old t in, in covenant is you have a feast. 
to have a feast to celebrate the covenant. The seven steps of covenant. We have a feast. And how many of you understand that you, in the book of Revelation, that you are going to a feast? It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. The angels get to watch. You get to participate. We're going to a feast. Would you stand? Lord, I just pray right now that you, would re- that you would cause us to be a covenant people. That we would take our armor, our swords, that we would take our robes, and that when we come to you, that we would give you these things and we would take on yours. We would give you all the things that, make, that, that create our identity, our robe. The, this is who I was before I came to Christ. That's awesome. Lay that down because it's not who you are now. This, these, are the, these are the things I use to protect me. All right? Lay those down. You don't need that anymore because he's given you his armor. He's given you the sword of the spirit, the, arm, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, and so on and so forth. He has given you his protection. You give him yours. And, Lord, we, just, we pray that there would be a memorial between us, that there would be a memorial that we could have relationship with you and relationship with people in which our heart is knit to people and to God in a healthy way where passion flows without perversion. We pray for passion without perversion. We pray that the church of Jesus Christ would be a passionate place, holy kisses, if you will, without perversion. And that people who are looking for camaraderie and love, when they're looking for intimacy, They could come to this place. They wouldn't have to break in to the Pharisee's house, but they would be welcomed in by the king. In Jesus' name, amen.